Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. Connecting with other people is vital to our mental and even our physical well-being. During the pandemic, most of us have struggled with loneliness and isolation. And it's especially challenging for people who struggle with addiction. Before this isolation and this crisis occurred, I would be able to go to a meeting. I would be able to go to a friend's house and talk to them about it. It was rough at first, not being able to like go to meetings. I had to try to find my balance, you know, with the kids being home all the time. We'll hear stories about people who are overcoming challenges, finding ways to connect with each other and staying sober. It's becoming more and more comfortable every day. Uh, I'm becoming more at peace and finding my inner strength, which is something that I've lost along the way. You'll hear those stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. As we grapple with the immediate health emergency of the coronavirus pandemic, here in Appalachia, we're struggling with two other public health crises. One being the opioid epidemic, and the other is a large uptick in HIV cases. And researchers believe that those two are linked. West Virginia's capital city of Charleston is currently experiencing the nation's worst outbreak of HIV linked to injected drug use. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We'll learn more about that next week and hear from folks who worry that stigma and discrimination against people with substance use disorder is exacerbating the issue. In fact, more Americans lost their lives to drug overdoses in 2020 than any other year on record. Over 80,000 Americans died between June 2019 and June 2020. That's according to a December report issued by the CDC. This is a public health crisis that's never really gone away here in Appalachia. For several years now, there's been a crackdown on prescription drugs to curb the opioid epidemic, but it's led to spikes in overdoses from street drugs, like heroin, often laced with fentanyl. Add into the equation the pandemic and the resulting social isolation, increased anxiety, and widespread unemployment, all of which can trigger relapses for people who struggle with addiction. The situation is so critical that we're listening back to an entire episode we aired at the start of the pandemic. It focuses on how the new world we live in affects the path to recovery. But before we get started, I'm going to give you a number to call if you or a loved one would like to talk with a professional counselor about recovery or addiction. It's 1-800-662-HELP. Again, if you want to write it down, 1-800-662-4357. That's the hotline for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. They offer free, confidential counseling. Substance use disorder, like many mental health conditions, is often rooted in childhood trauma. A lot of people will turn to alcohol and drugs to self-medicate. And a lot of times it takes a personal connection with someone in order to break through all of that to find recovery. Reporter Kyle Vass spoke with one man about how he found sobriety. 
By the time Barlow Harlan was 32, he had spent the better part of a decade doing three things, taking care of his aging mother, working as a sound engineer, and drinking alone in his apartment. And I, I drank every day in that apartment for a good three years, every day that I lived in the apartment. It got so bad that I, I would have moments, like I, was, I contemplated the fact that, you know, I may not wake up tomorrow because of how much I'm drinking. It, uh, it, it's kind of scary to get to that point when you're drinking so much that you realize that you may end up killing yourself with alcohol, but yet you still don't do anything about it. You know, what does it really matter? Uh, nobody will even know anyways. Because Harlan did sound for live concerts, he often had to be on tour for weeks at a time. He had a tour coming up, and he wanted to detox beforehand so he wouldn't end up going into withdrawal on the road. A few days before his crew was set to take off, he tried to quit drinking, cold turkey. Just ran out of whiskey one night, and I was like, well, this is going to be it. I'll just quit drinking. It's convenient. Of course, that resulted in a lot of withdrawal, probably the worst withdrawal I've ever been through in my entire life. I physically could not function. I could not eat and I was so exhausted from trying to throw up that I couldn't even stand up anymore. Um, and I remember I kept getting phone calls and messages from my boss. And I just, I couldn't even respond. I mean, I didn't even know what to say. Harlan had never missed work. So when his boss couldn't get a hold of him, he knew something had to be seriously wrong. His boss knew about his history with alcohol. So he got Harlan's address from one of his employees and showed up at his door. Then I get a knock on my door, and I'm like, well, shit. And so there I am. I'm, I'm, I'm in my bed at this point. You know, I've got the windows all shut. The curtains are drawn. And I'm in there naked, and then I got my boss banging on my door. And I'm like, well, you know, what am I going to do? So I, <laughs> I guess it's the logical thing for me is just to, to sit there and, and hide. And, uh, well, maybe it'll just go away, you know. But his boss didn't go away. He was determined to get Harlan. The next thing he did was he started breaking in my window. And that would seem somewhat normal, except for the fact that I lived on the second story of the building. After scaling his building, Harlan's boss put some clothes on him, carried him out, and drove him to the hospital. He's been sober ever since. For Harlan, it was isolation that led to him almost drinking himself to death but it was a relationship with one person that saved his life. He says that this is what he learned when he got into recovery, that interpersonal relationships are essential to keeping up with sobriety. Because when we isolate as addicts and push people away, a lot of times we think the public doesn't care about us. But when you get into recovery and you get sober, whether you realize it or not, you depend on other people to support you. I've had a lot of requests during this time to say, what can people do to stay connected? Laurie Tiki is a loneliness researcher at West Virginia University. She says health professionals now identify loneliness as a health risk when it comes to chronic illness, which includes addiction. We know in West Virginia that adults average three or more chronic illnesses. And um, we reviewed 31 studies so far that measured either loneliness or social isolation in people with substance use disorders. And so 
we do know that people with loneliness uh, specifically and substance use problems have more social anxiety, have more depressive symptoms. And we know that this is a time that they may have lower ability to self-regulate or control. But be it school, work, or sobriety meetings, right now, the world is using online platforms to interact. Tiki says virtual meetings might not be the perfect solution to loneliness, but they can help. She says the most important thing that anyone with a chronic illness can do right now is to stay in touch with their healthcare provider. Don't hesitate or think that you can't connect with someone. We do have ways to connect with you virtually where you could um, do a video visit, see your provider at least. So having some FaceTime is important. Check in with your provider and, and get additional help if you need it. Tiki says after patients have sought out the help of their healthcare providers, then they can start to factor in how they should use technology to reach out to their support networks. And then thinking about, is this a time where if you're in recovery that you need to be a little more proactive? Do you need to more frequently attend like virtual meetings? To quote Scottish journalist Johan Hari, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. Tiki says substance use or not, we're all figuring out how to stay connected in this pandemic. She says we each have to adjust what we're doing day by day to see what makes us feel less lonely. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Kyle Vass. Isolation is something that just about every human being is facing right now. But for many in recovery, it can be dangerous. Zoom or Skype meetings have become a lifeline to maintaining sobriety. And Ashley Temple knows a little about it. She's a mother to three kids who all live in Charleston, West Virginia. It was rough at first, not being able to, like, go to meetings. I had to try to find um, my balance, you know, with the kids being home all the time. And so it's hard for me sometimes to kind of, like, focus on, you know, the meeting. Temple works full-time at a hospital. She's also a single mom. At the time of this interview, her youngest was two months old. So I usually get up about 5 or 5.30. I feed the baby get her ready. I drop the kids off to where they're going and I go on to work. I work from 7 to 3.30 every day. Usually I try to have something set out for dinner. Um, I'll cook dinner. I'll usually sit down, play with the kids for a little bit. Then I'll do my meeting online. Temple found a community of support for her recovery when she moved into a sober living facility at Ray of Hope in Charleston. I was, you know, broken and just wanted a better way of life and wanted to be an example for my kids and show them, you know, that I made mistakes in the past, but I didn't let it define who I was. And I persevered through all of that and that I'm a strong, independent woman that, you know, could take care of them. Temple, along with others, are fighting against a lot of tough odds, but they're doing the best they can. I think a lot of us are right now. Next, we're going to take a step back to explore a few of the things that led us to this point. Trey Kay, host of the podcast Us and Them, visited a small town in southern West Virginia where residents have intimate knowledge of the opioid crisis. There's your train coming. Hey there, 
This is Trey Kay, and from West Virginia Public Broadcasting and PRX, this is Us and Them, the show that tells the stories about the things that divide us. I was looking out for the train because it has defined the town of Kermit, West Virginia, for decades. About 350 people live in this Mingo County town. And if you just walk a few feet over the Tug River, you're in Kentucky. Debbie Priest grew up in Kermit. They're great people, great people. If something happens to someone in the community, everybody in the county gathers, comes to them. And, you know, they say it takes a community to raise a child. Where I live in Kermit, it's, okay, we have one little restaurant, a bank, farm, one pharmacy, and an auto store. Is there a traffic light? No, absolutely. <laughs> Never has been. In the beginning, Kermit was a quintessential coal town. Eric Eyre is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter, formerly of the Charleston Gazette Mail. Kermit's got, you know, steep hills, and you've got a, a river that runs through it, and you've got railroad uh, that runs directly through town, shakes your houses when you're sitting at home in the when the trains come by, when the coal trains come by. Mingo County, uh, probably people know it's the birthplace of the Hatfield and McCoy feud. Yep, you heard that right. This is where the Hatfield family of West Virginia spent decades feuding with the McCoys of Kentucky. But there's another thing that's made Kermit infamous. It seems like every couple of years there's some sort of scandal regarding corruption, voter fraud, or kickbacks or bribery, that sort of thing. And Debbie and the Priest family have been involved in a lot of it. In the late 1980s, some members of the Priest family sold weed and cocaine. At the time, Debbie was a member of the city council and married to the chief of police. Her father was the fire chief. But after a big undercover drug bust involving the FBI, more than 50 people went to jail, including many members of the Priest family. You know, I'm not Lily White. I have a bad history, and something very tragic happened to our family. I mean, it was no secret that my, my family was doing it, and, and because of the payoffs and the money, you know, everybody just turned a blind eye. And I felt like they encouraged it by turning a blind eye and taking payoffs from my family. As the coal economy in this part of West Virginia slowed down, drugs have played a defining role. Forty years ago, it was illegal drugs. More recently, it's been prescription painkillers. Kermit has made national news at the height of the opioid crisis when it was flooded with pills. In six years, from 2006 to 2012, pharmaceutical distributors sent 780 million hydrocodone and oxycodone pills to West Virginia. In three years, 12 million hydrocodone pills were shipped by various drug distributors into Kermit. And in a two-year period, drug distributors sent nearly 9 million prescription opioid pills to Kermit. All of that in a town of about 350 people. The painkillers that once made it possible for miners to keep on working were now being overprescribed and abused. It 
didn't take long for all those pills to take a toll. In 2016, one of Debbie Priest's 13 siblings, William Bull Priest, died from an oxycodone overdose. Two years later, her brother Timmy Dale also OD'd. Debbie vowed that her brother's deaths would not be viewed as just another overdose. Reporter Eric Ayer wanted to know how a tight-knit town like Kermit became the epicenter for opioids. As he dug into the story, he uncovered a world of corruption and pills and families being torn apart. Eric's reporting resulted in a Pulitzer Prize and a new book, Death in Mudlick. Mudlick is a small community where Bull lived. The book is about the priest family and how Kermit has been flooded with opioids. The first question Eric wanted to answer is, how could this happen? It happened with uh, a number of group, different groups getting together, um, taking part in it. Uh, you had the manufacturers who were advertising the drugs as non-addictive. You had the distributors who were just shipping the drugs from the uh, manufacturing facilities to warehouses and then to pharmacies. You had the pharmacists that were dispensing the drugs and you had the doctors who were running something called pain pill clinics, which were basically uh, fronts for just a massive distribution of prescriptions. At its peak, Kermit was getting more than 31,000 pills for every person who lived in the town. How could no one have noticed this in such a small town? Debbie Priest says people knew. I don't think it was unnoticed. I don't know how it could have been unnoticed unless you just buried your head in the sand. I knew there was a problem just by the traffic and, and the people going to these doctors and, and me knowing people and them talking to me. I don't know, maybe because I was a worldly person and I knew and a lot of people trusted me and and talked to me and um, came to me for help a lot. But I just don't, I don't think you, I don't know how you could not have known it. Remember how Debbie described Kermit earlier with only one post office, one restaurant, no traffic lights, and a pharmacy. It was called Save Right. That very pharmacy filled tens of thousands of prescriptions. Prescriptions that weren't always legitimate. There were about 70 different places across the state of West Virginia called pain clinics. A number of them were just sham clinics. They had uh, doctors that were uh, affiliated with the facilities, but they weren't necessarily there. Here in Charleston, we had one that I drove by every day for lunch. Uh, we got a report about what was going on there. And they would have these uh, facilities where you had ex-cops working at them. They were uh, taking blood pressure and temperatures of patients, but the doctors weren't even there, and they were printing out bogus prescriptions by literally, you know, one a minute at some, some of these pain clinics. As long as you paid in cash, you'd get a prescription, and then they would steer you to a particular pharmacy that would fill that prescription. Eric found out people would come to that Save Right pharmacy from Ohio, Virginia, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, and even Florida and Flint, Michigan, to get their prescriptions filled. And that's where the traffic that Debbie mentioned comes in. It got so bad at one point that they, uh, people were complaining about the waits to get their prescription opioids. So they, 
the owner of the pharmacy, uh, Jim Uli, he set up a camper trailer on the site and started selling hot dogs and hamburgers and soda pop. That sounds like a menu. county fair or something like that. Yeah, and then inside they had, um, you know, they had hot buttered popcorn inside. When you see cars that are backing up far on the highway, and 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 I guess there's trailers outside. Doesn't anybody around there raise a suspicion? Doesn't the state state police, do they drive by and, and ask what's going on here? Well, first off, the local police in Kermit, they only had one police officer, the police chief. Uh, so he wasn't going to do anything. And then the local, you know, they have a Mingo County Sheriff's Department. But a lot of their officers had connections. They're, in one case, one of the chief deputies of the Mingo County Sheriff's Department, his wife was a farm tech at the, at the pharmacy. So they, they certainly weren't going to do anything. Eric, America is a big place. And there are parts of, of, of our nation that has more wealth than West Virginia. Why was it that there would be such an intense targeting of West Virginia and particularly this part of the state that is predominantly coal miners and coal miners in many ways are a dying breed? Yeah, well, we were definitely a particular vulnerable population and and these companies realized that. And I don't know if they set out and put a bullseye on us, but once they saw the numbers that were coming out of West Virginia, the appetite for these prescription painkillers, then it was just unbridled shipments. There's been documents that have people saying, sell, sell, sell uh, from the corporate uh, manufacturers. And then you have situations where there was a warehouse in Washington Courthouse where people that worked for McKesson Corporation, which is one of the largest shippers of opioids to Appalachia, they started raising questions and they were just, you know, saying, hey, look, look what's going on in Kermit, West Virginia. And, you know, we need to get on this as soon as possible. But the higher ups never got on it. They were just, uh, you know, they were seeing the sales numbers and going through the roof and they weren't going to do anything to stop it. Eric, when, when you say that, what goes through my mind is if we weren't talking about an opioid drug problem right now, and we were, say, talking about the, the history of the coal industry in West Virginia. In a way, you just, in, in your answer there, you kind of described another situation where there is a, a, a company outside who is sending a product into the state that is harming people who live here, and yet the money for that is going away. Am I missing something? No, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I refer to them in the book in a place as corporate uh, pill pushers. And not only that, not only were they sending the pills here, you know, just last month, an email was unsealed in the in the federal case in which the cities and counties are filing suit against the distributors. Eric told me that in this email, there was a parody song about hillbillies, sung to the tune of the Beverly Hillbillies theme. Come and listen to a story about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer barely kept his habit fed. Then one day he was looking at some tube and saw that Florida had a lax attitude, about pills that is. 
hillbilly heroin, O.C. Pills, that is. Buy some pills. Take a load home. Y'all come back now, you hear? Just reading these words makes me cringe. We don't have time to listen to the rest of this episode of Us and Them, but I encourage you to listen on your own time. It's so good. Trey K. really took the time to connect with people in Kermit who are seeing the effects of the opioid epidemic play out. It's truly worth a listen. Us and Them is a podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Find it wherever you get your podcasts and at wvpublic.org. Up next, we'll hear from award-winning filmmaker Elaine McMillian Sheldon about her passion for shining a light on the resilience and strength of Appalachians. To this day, when I pass the hills or mountains that there's fog rolling out of them or mist rolling out of them that I don't stop and take a photo, I regret it. But it seems that when reporters come to Appalachia, it's like, number one, run down homes and uh, Mm -hmm. abandoned toys. Let's show how desperate the situation is when, you know, the reality is that's some kid's toy. And I'm sure if you talk to them, they'd have a full story in and of themselves that paints a different story than desperation. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. I have a favor to ask. We are coming up on one year of living with a worldwide pandemic, and we want to hear from you. Our Inside Appalachia team is working on an episode looking back at this past year. How has your life changed? Where are the silver linings? Have you had to revamp or rethink your career, social life, family, where you live? What's giving you hope? Tell us about it. We want to hear it all. Leave us a voicemail at 304-460-5582. We might use your voice in an upcoming episode. Again, that's 304-460-5582. Today, we're diving deep to hear how people are finding their inner strength and overcoming the challenges of substance use disorder. Most of us have been touched or affected by this crisis in some way or another. Unfortunately, there are many stigmas in society that create barriers and keep people from getting help. But there are also heroes among us who are trying to break those barriers down. Several of these heroes are featured in two Netflix documentaries, Recovery Boys and a film called Heroin, with an E. 
Both are directed by Elaine McMillian Sheldon and her husband, Curran Sheldon. They both grew up in West Virginia. Just after the release of Recovery Boys back in 2018, Elaine sat down with Sarah Smarsh, host of a podcast called The Homecomers. They spoke about what drove Elaine to devote her career to telling stories about difficult realities and the resilience of Appalachians. I was born in Abingdon, Virginia, and I grew up in Logan, West Virginia. And we moved 12 times before I was in sixth grade between those two towns. My dad worked in the coal industry right out of high school. He worked underground with his dad and then was the first in our family to go to college, which was advised against by his own dad. You know, my grandpa, once my dad got a diploma, said to him, like, I don't know what you plan to do with that piece of paper Mm. because it was a break away from family tradition. And it sort of put my dad in a difficult position, and still to this day, difficult position, being sort of seen as an outsider within his own family, choosing a different path, moving his family away from the location that it was an unspoken rule that everyone in my family would stay in these two hollers. Mm -hmm. And my family did it and we left. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful we did because I've had so many opportunities that a lot of my cousins just haven't been able to access. So we were solidly middle class. I've learned since then that middle class in West Virginia feels and looks and manifests itself a little bit different than maybe someone who grew up in L.A. and calls themselves middle class. Right. I went to school systems that were underfunded. We lived in a lot of coal company homes, which meant we didn't own them. I remember not being able to paint the walls or like personalize your house in any way. So I would just like cover my closet in stickers because I wanted to really personalize my childhood bedroom, but I wasn't allowed because it was owned by the coal company. But we also had our own homes in some places and I never personally wanted for anything. I really feel like my dad's early life decisions impacted me in a pretty big way. So you were a kid in the 90s. The inequality and the rising mortality rates and the addiction crises that we're going to talk about later in the conversation, those trends were already beginning during your childhood while you were relative to that place, middle class. You had a sense of decline in your immediate Advantage, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, I think as a kid, you see things, you're not seeing them from a systems point of view like you do as an adult. You're just seeing things as you come across them. And there was a clear disparity and lack of cohesion among some of my classmates whose parents had died or had left or were in prison. You know, I remember one particular kid just really struggling in school, and I I remember he couldn't hold a pencil correctly, and, like, a lot of us other students were trying to teach him. This was, like, in third grade, mm-hmm. and he was raised by his grandparents who were doing their best but really were not in a position to be raising a, a third- and fourth-grade kid. So there were situations like that where you just realized how lucky you were. I mean, there were certainly people I knew that— We're coming from homes where families were severely disabled from the coal industry. You know, there were kids Mm -hmm. I went to school with whose dads no longer could work, whether there's a broken back or whatever it was. So, you know, looking at substance use disorder, there's clear ways that we can tell if someone is more at risk. Not being in a stable environment is clearly not a good way for a child to be raised. It applies stressors to their life that often can put them at risk. I was talking to someone today, a researcher actually from Iceland who's working at West Virginia University, who said that society creates the drug users. And I think that 
that's a very Iceland community-based opinion, mm. but I don't think America is ready to own up to the fact that we all share responsibility in the shame and stigma and negative environments that are created that only fuel drug use or substance use disorder. I don't think I was aware of all those things when I was little. I was just more aware that I had it better than some kids. I had a mom that when she got off work would pick me up from school, and my parents were very involved in my life, and not every kid had that, and I, I really credit that to where I am today. So much of your work has such a sense of groundedness in place, not just because of a kind of hyper-focus on a defined geographic location, but also, I think, because of the way that you convey stories. I'm just curious how you would describe the place of Logan County, West Virginia, as just a piece of earth and topography apart from politics and society and class and all these man-made structures. To this day, when I pass the hills or mountains that there's fog rolling out of them or mist rolling out of them that I don't stop and take a photo, I regret it. But it seems that when reporters come to Appalachia, it's like, number one, run down homes and uh, mm-hmm. abandoned toys. Let's show how desperate the situation is when, you know, the reality is that's some kid's toy. And I'm sure if you talk to them, they'd have a full story in and of themselves that paints a different story than desperation. Logan is a gorgeous county and community that's nestled in the coal fields. And I mean, it's it's nature. I'm very connected to nature. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I still like to live in West Virginia, you know, hiking, kayaking, mm-hmm. being out in nature, being able to walk outside and go into Canal State Forest and going to Fayetteville and places to just be among nature. I mean, all my grandparents and parents instilled with us the stewardship of loving nature and taking care of it. So that's what I think of when I think of Logan. I obviously think of floods. There were a lot of floods growing up, and there still are to this day. doesn't help the strip mining and, and timbering in Logan County and surrounding counties. When the water um, is pouring down those mountains, it really runs, and it floods, and it's really devastating. So those things come to mind. And also um, the pawn shop my mom worked at. I would go there after school and just sit in the back room and watch TV. But the people that would come in, whether they were the town drunk or Mm -hmm. the preacher, it was like a place where everybody came in, this pawn shop, and just had conversations with the owner named Don and my mom. And my mom would sell people jewelry. And it was just a really interesting way to understand how a town functions with these different types of characters and how they all play a really important role to that fabric. In 2018, Elaine was nominated for an Academy Award for her Netflix documentary, Heroin, which explores the story of three women in Huntington, West Virginia, who are helping people find recovery. Sheldon's film Recovery Boys follows a group of young men in rural Preston County through a recovery program. Let's pick back up now with the conversation Sarah Smarsh recorded a few years ago with Elaine for her podcast, The Homecomers. In previous interviews, you have said that there are a lot of stereotypes about opioids and and who is vulnerable to that addiction and what that looks like in a community. You've pushed back on that before and said all of us are one bad injury away from the danger zone of getting hooked. And also that this crisis really knows no class, race, or gender. I wanted to kind of explore the class angle of that specifically. Wealthy Americans are actually doing better than ever. From 2000 to 2014, wealthy Americans gained five years in life expectancy, but poor Americans did not improve. Mm -hmm. 
men in the top 1% live 15 years longer than those in the bottom 1%. For women, it's a difference of about 10 years. And then maybe most relevant to your work and the place where you train your your camera lens, rural middle-aged white women in particular have seen a, a mortality rate increase of almost 50% since 1990. That's according to a Washington Post data analysis. Mm-hmm. So, so, so economic status certainly affects outcomes. Mm-hmm. What is the relationship between class and addiction and specifically rural life and addiction? You know, one of the reasons it's important to say that addiction sees no gender, race, and class is for a number of reasons. Communities of color have been completely disregarded in the conversation of rehabilitation, have been completely locked up and thrown away for their addictions. And I think it's a a valid point to question why the opioid crisis is getting so much attention right now when it's largely affecting white populations In terms of class, you know, when heroin came out, there was a review, and someone had written this about heroin. The concept of seeing people from a lower-income town struggling with addiction could turn some people off and lose their interest right off the bat. (laughs) So the fact that we have such a minor capacity to care about a class that we know nothing about butts up against a lot of the work I'm doing. I think there are very clear indicators that say chronic poverty and addiction go hand in hand. When you're in a system that's broken, when you're in a household that drugs are present or a household that isn't stable, I mean, that's not just in white rural or black rural or black urban, that's across the board. But I think that for me, I mean, I came into this with this knowledge that my friends were dying. I went to this thing with my parents and found out that a girl that I went to prom with was found dead in a uh, Kentucky hotel. She had overdosed and her boyfriend was being potentially charged with her murder because he had supplied the drugs. And then I had had friends that I found out when I was filming a scene for Recovery Boys during Overdose Awareness Day, I heard their names being called out over the speaker when they were naming all the OD victims. So... And those are all women. I have a handful of male friends that have overdosed as well, but majority of my experience has been losing female friends from middle school and high school who I've lost touch with. I think that when we talk about rural addiction, I think as a society, we still see this as as a bad decision, as a moral failure. And until we take morality out of it and truly understand the many different factors that steer someone towards addiction... Or, you know, some of the girls that I knew actually were prescribed Oxycontin. You know, four out of five heroin users started with a legal pill. So I just think there's a lot of misunderstanding around how powerful these drugs are. And, you know, when you're looking at a, a rural community, I think there's there's like three or four needle exchanges, syringe exchanges in West Virginia. So some people are traveling like six hours round trip to get clean needles. And this is a huge dispute in Charleston, where I live right now, our mayor is wanting to shut down our syringe exchange by over-exaggerating the number of needles that are on the street, when in fact the needle exchange itself is based on 
the fact that you bring in the used needles and they exchange them for clean needles. This is the whole idea of a needle exchange, to get needles off the street. So there's just a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of morality brought to the conversation about who's worthy. Even within the same class, people that are judging those for being on welfare, you know, they feel a higher moral standard because they themselves aren't on welfare. You're seeing that the same thing with people suffering from addiction. The substance is irrelevant to me. It's what I've learned in the filmmaking process. It really doesn't matter. I mean, alcohol kills tons of people. You know, the substance is irrelevant. It's the disconnection from society that is the part we have to heal. And the guys that we film in Recovery Boys are all feeling a lack of belonging when they come to rehab. They've been so isolated with whatever substance that they were hooked on at that moment that they have no sense of belonging to a larger community. And that's where America really needs to step up and take responsibility with the environments we create, the stigma, whether it's class stigma or addiction stigma, the whole idea that some people are worth a second chance and and others aren't. A child from an upper middle class family in Connecticut is worth a third chance and has access to rehab, but a kid from a quote-unquote bad family from Morgantown, West Virginia, should rot in jail or just let him die. There's very clear standards in how we treat people. I'm still learning every day. I learn from the guys that we've been filming. I learn from the women in heroin. And, and I think the biggest thing for me is learning that you know addiction cannot manifest and grow and fester and sort of get out of control in strong communities that look out for one another. Addiction is only fed by isolation in America and that stigmatizing. That interview with Elaine McMillian Sheldon was recorded in 2018. Since then, the needle exchange she referenced at the country health department has closed. And there's also a new mayor in Charleston, Amy Goodwin. We reached out to her for any updates on the harm reduction program at the Charleston Health Department. Tune back in next week to hear the latest on that. Stories about substance use disorder often focus on the low points in a person's life, like getting arrested, surviving an overdose, or losing custody of a child. In other words, stories about substance use disorder don't always show the full range of a person's experience. And I love that this next story is different. Ryan Elkins grew up in Lincoln County, West Virginia. He's now the head of the Lincoln County Outreach Program and a student at Marshall University. But before he could help others, he had to find peace with himself. Well, right now we're sitting on the front porch of my house and uh, looking at looking out over what I uh, take pictures of every day and post on the outreach program, which is basically the direction of the sun rising um, out over the, the hay field up the road there and the hills and the, and the trees that surround the entire property, which is what I really love about this place because it's so... Um, serene and peaceful up here. You can always hear the birds chirping. Uh, even in the wintertime, you come out here in the front yard and, and you'll see the crows sitting out here or whatever and the dogs playing. And um, I grew up right down the road here, um, seven, eight, nine um, years of age, early in my life. We grew up in a house that did not have indoor plumbing. 
Um, we had a, a, a hand dug well out in the yard. We drew, drew our water up with. We had a uh, number two wash tub that we took baths in. We would heat our water up on the stove. We wash our dishes the same way. We had an old scrub board that we scrubbed our clothes on out in the, out in the back porch. Or uh, if it was winter time, we'd we'd come in the kitchen and do it. We'd always put a curtain up over the kitchen door doorway because we didn't have any door there, and we'd take our baths in there in that in that wash tub. Uh, so it was not easy living, um, not to mention, you know, the, having the abuse of dad, not having a mom, you know, my mom died when I was 11 months old. So that made things a lot more difficult too. Uh, but day to day we would go jump in a river, you know, that's how we had fun. We would just go jump in a river or we'd take rides on bicycles. Um, we, there really wasn't a whole lot else to do. And we absolutely had nothing to do inside the house. We, you know, people get raised up on air conditioners. Man, I didn't know what an air conditioner was. When did substances come into the equation for me? Um, I think the first time that I used a substance, I was about eight years old. Uh, and that substance was alcohol. And I, I think it wasn't until I was around nine that I started smoking marijuana. Um, and, and my dad gave me them both. I, well, first, my sisters moved to Ohio. Both my sisters left, and they moved to Ohio, so it was just me and my dad. And that kind of left me to take the brunt in all my dad uh, as abuse and stuff. And then he, we built a house up on Parsner next door to my grandma and grandpa, and, um, you know, it, it got really bad. It, it got really bad. Um, I didn't have anybody to talk to. I didn't have anybody to, to ask for help. I would go to, to Hamlin, and I, I would report him you know, for the abuse. And they would say, well, you deserved it or whatever. The schools, they didn't care back then. These things, it just didn't matter. Um, so I ended up moving in with my uncle Jimmy out in Ohio in the Savannah. Uh, it's about 300 miles, give or take, um, out to my uncle's house from here. So I stayed out there about nine months and it was a whole nother world out there. I'd, I'd never, lived at a place like that before i you know i'd never been out of branchland before really something that was even more profound for me personally was the amount of love and support that i was shown out there by by my family on my mom's side my uncle jimmy and aunt lisa and grandma and all of them they were so loving and caring that it scared the shit out of me i tried to avoid people um but it was very hard it was easy to avoid people here at my dad's house because there's nobody around to avoid. But out there, there was always somebody asking how you're doing, always somebody worried and concerned and wanting to help or offer support. And I'm like, man, get away from me. I, I, I can't stand this. Y'all's, y'all's coming on too strong. I, I ain't used to this. Just, just back up and give me a minute to catch my breath, you know? And one day I was uh, sitting there, man, and my uncle and them, they was getting ready to go do a music show. My uncle, you know, he's a musician, Jimmy is, and a wonderful one at that. And they asked me if I wanted to go. I said, no, I'm just going to stay at home. What they didn't know was I'd already called my grandmother to to come and get me and bring me back to West Virginia. Um, And they came home right about the time that my grandma and Aunt Robin was pulling in. And uh, and I just just jumped in the car and left, man. I, I packed my... I didn't didn't really say much of nothing to him about what I was doing or why. I just I just jumped in the car and headed her back to West Virginia. What brought me back to West Virginia was the hills, the 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 isolation, the the royal community, um, the the ability to walk out of my 
backyard and and there'd be a mountain there for me to go up in the woods and just just hunt or fish or whatever I wanted to do. Um, those were the parts of West Virginia that I missed the most. Um, I always wanted to be distant from people. I never wanted to be around people. I hated people. But then coming into recovery, it's like, did I really hate people or did I just hate myself? And that's what I come to understand from from working steps and being clean in recovery is that I was just scared of people and I hated who I was as a result of the way I was raised. And it really didn't have anything to do with anybody other than myself. And and now I absolutely love people. I love being in social gatherings. I love being involved in the community. You know, growing up, needing isolated, coming into recovery, needing social connections and social relationships and being connected with other people. And now back in isolation again, do I feel temptations to use? Absolutely. Um, do I have a desire to use? No, I don't. And to me, there's a big difference in, in like a fleeting thought or, or um, just being tempted to do something and have a desire to actually want to go do it. I had a guy reach out to me about four days ago uh, and offer me some drugs for free just to give him a ride. And, uh, and I was tempted. I'm not going to lie to you. I was tempted. Uh, and I'm sitting out here isolated by myself, and this is how my disease works on me. Well, there ain't nobody will ever know. You could do it just once, and it'll be okay. You won't, you won't do it. You can handle it now. That's, that's the kind of things that goes on inside my head when I get tempted, is my disease starts validating those temptations and justifying them and saying, well, you can use just once, and, and nobody will ever know. And then my recovery kicks in, and it's like, man, shut up. <laughs> You're being an idiot. You know, you know better. And you don't really want to do that anyway. And that's usually the side of me that always wins over the battle in my head. I think that it has changed since I've been going through isolation, the the, the sound of reason and dealing with my disease and the symptoms. Um, it, it has changed a lot. And it's not that it's – I'm not going to say that it's different. It's the same disease and the same symptoms, but the way that I perceive them – and cope with them have changed since I've been in isolation because normally um, when before this isolation and this crisis occurred, I would be able to go to a meeting. I would be able to go to a friend's house or, or whatever and talk to them about it. And now I have to find ways to stay connected with God and through prayer and meditation. And if I need somebody, I have to call or I use a Zoom meeting. But um, it's different. It's becoming more and more comfortable every day. Uh, I'm becoming more at peace and finding my inner strength, which is something that I've lost along the way because I've relied so much on other people that I forgot how to rely on myself. And that's a big piece of me that I was missing and wasn't even aware of it. So it's really, really nice and comforting to know that I have this inner strength that I can rely on myself and, and God to just be at peace with who I am today. Thanks to Kyle Vass for recording Elkin's story. At a moment when many of us in our country are struggling to find inner peace, I think that Elkin's story is truly inspiring. 
After he found his own path to recovery, Ryan Elkins was inspired to devote his life to helping others. He's now a recovery coach in Lincoln County, West Virginia, and a student at Marshall University. It makes me think of one of my heroes. Heck, he's probably a hero to a lot of us. Fred Rogers. Or you might know him as Mr. Rogers. He once said, All of us, at some time or other, need help. Whether we're giving or receiving help, each one of us has something valuable to bring to this world. He also said, That's one of the things that connects us as neighbors. In our own way, each one of us is a giver and a receiver. Again, if you want to talk with a professional counselor about recovery or addiction, call this number, 1-800-662-4357 or 1-800-662-HELP. That's the hotline for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from the National Geographic Society, The Homecomers, and Us and Them. Our theme music is by Matt Jackfurt. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Anna and Elizabeth, Marisa Anderson, and Blue Dot Sessions. Roxy Todd is our producer, and our executive producer is Andrea Phillips. Glennis Board and Kelly Libby edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens, and Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for our newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs, to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.